Let's pray together before we open God's word. Father, we thank you for the songs that we have sung, reminding us of who you are and who we are in you. And we thank you for the identity that we have in Jesus Christ, that in Jesus we are significant, we are secure, we are accepted, and we're forgiven, and we're empowered. And we thank you that when we know Jesus, when you have grabbed our heart and you brought us to yourself, we will be in your family forever. And we thank you for that confidence and the freedom we have to live knowing who we are in Christ. And so, Father, we come today with many different emotions and many different things from this past week, with challenges, with great opportunities. We come from situations that have been very difficult and even discouraging and things, Lord, that have been very exciting. But now we come to focus on you. We come to hear from you. Wherever we are, Lord, we know that you will meet us right where we are and you won't leave us there, but you take us to that next place that you want us to be. So thank you, Father, for our time and we pray your blessing on it in Christ's name. Amen. So we started this new series called uh, Unselfie, We, Not Me, and most of you are very familiar with uh, selfie and the whole Instagram thing and taking all that, but a few of you aren't, and so just to make sure we're all on the same page, let me show you some things so that we can understand what we're talking about here in this aspect of technology. So I got these from our youth group. Uh, who are very, very good at taking selfies. All right? So here's uh, just, that's a classic selfie right there. Here is Jessica. That was a trip a couple years ago, in a, a senior uh, trip. And uh, she is in the river taking a selfie. Now, not everyone can do that. That's talent. And you got to have not only talent, but you need a, a waterproof uh, case on your iPhone uh, to do that as well. And then here's uh, the next one. Uh, this is Gar uh, to your left. Uh, Gar is one of our leaders, uh, Gar Baker, one of our leaders in our junior high ministry. And we have a thing every year called Go Weekend. And this uh, year, 430 students went out into the community. They went to nursing homes. They did some things here at the Bible Chapel. They went to other campuses. And they just worked. Uh, they went to some people's yards and cleaned their yards. Anything that needed done, Go Weekend. And this is Gar with uh, some of the guys from Go Weekend. I think it's snowing there. I can't tell. And the one kid's catching the snow uh, with his tongue. So that's kind of more of a groupie than a selfie. Uh, but that uh, gives you an idea there. Here is one. And I just learned uh, what the name of this is. This is called a sake. Anyone know what a sake is? That is a super awkward selfie. So if you take a selfie that's awkward, uh, that's a sake. And uh, the, the youth group has this thing they do all the time. And if you travel with any from the, anyone from the youth group, they do it to you, which is not as humorous as this is. But they, 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 when they're on a plane, traveling back from Panama or wherever they're going, or on a bus or in a van or in a car, they find someone who's asleep. Now, we all admit that when we're asleep, that's not our best look, right? And so they go to the person asleep and they put their head in there like Michaela did and they take a picture of themselves with a super awkward picture of others. That's a sake. Anyone know that before? 
See, you learned something today. And here's the last one. This is called a photobomb, right? <laughs> so here we have Sarah. She's just taking a, getting a picture taken of her, of her uh, field hockey. And her mom, Jen, has, just can't be left out of the picture, right? She's got to get in the picture. A photobomb. So that catches you up on what we're talking about regarding this broad area called selfie. So with that, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Today we're going to look at this perfect creation where Adam and Eve are in this perfect picture and then Satan photobombs the picture in Genesis chapter 3. Now before we get there, I want to remind you what this series is about. Unselfie, we, not me. What we're trying to do in this uh, series, I'm certainly trying to do it as I study through it and preach it, is we are trying to address uh, self-absorption, self-focus. And we all have that issue. We all think about ourselves first. That's why so many passages of Scripture tell us not to do that. One of the things we've said this series is about is to get over ourselves in order to live beyond ourselves. The only time we're really going to have that exciting life, that, ad, that a great adventure that God has for us is if, if we and when we get over ourselves. Unselfie, we, not me. Now again, I want to remind you that when we talk about we, we're talking about two things here. First of all, we're talking about our relationship with God. And we want that to grow deeper. That's where it all starts. The we has to start with us and God. That's the first we. That's the most important we. That's the we that drives everything else in our life, or should. The second we is the vertical, and that is with others. And we want this one to be richer. What we've been saying is we want that to be richer in our home with couples. We want that to be richer in our families, in our date, in dating relationships. We want it to be richer in our community, our church community. What we've said is this, this we is dependent on this we. When we have that growing relationship with God, everything else falls in place, or it falls into place in a, in a smoother way. So this we is dependent on this we, and our relationship with God drives this we. And so we have to make sure we start with that relationship with God. And we talked about that last week as we talked about what it means to be made in the image of God. I'm not going to review all that, but we said that God gives us these communicable attributes of life and morality and all those things. I think we had seven or eight things we listed. And he puts us on earth to represent him. And one of the things that we said to be made in the image of God, since we're made in the image of God, there is within the heart of every living person a desire to reach beyond themselves. Now people do it, now this side of Genesis 3, it's perverted. But there's a desire to live beyond ourselves. There's a desire to reach for something. There's this hole in our heart that's hard to fill. And so you go into a pagan culture in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa and Jesus hadn't been presented there or a Bible, they don't have a Bible and yet what do you find? You find, uh, you find statues and idols. Why is that? 
because we're made in the image of God. And there's this part of us that cries out for God, part of us that wants this relationship with him. Jack Keebler uh, here at our church is, uh, has his degree in apologetics, and so I asked him, give me some examples uh, of, of, of this desire for, uh, desire for relationship with God around the world. He's given me some, some great examples. I'll be sharing those throughout the series. But, but I wanted to give this quote today. This is, this is a quote uh, from Blaise Pascal. Anyone heard of Pascal? If, you, if you're a student, you certainly have. Uh, he lived in the 1600s. He was a French mathematician, a philosopher, great thinker of the age, a theologian, and a Christian. In fact, Pascal is credited with building the machine that later became the computer. He's credited as the early day father uh, of the computer. And listen to what Pascal says. Now, I've got it on the screen. This is written in 1600 language, but just just follow this along. Pascal is, is talking about this, since we're made in God's image, just desire for him. Pascal says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but, there, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries to fill in vain with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. So he's looking for things he can't find, he's looking for things that are there, but nothing fills him. Since the infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, what? Only God himself. That's the only one. God's the only one who can fill that void. We're all made in the image of God. And so we're, we, are, we are striving to fill that void. And we're striving for stuff. And even as believers, now we've trusted in Christ. Now the Holy Spirit lives within us. We'll talk about this later, but we still have that tension, don't we? We're still trying to, trying to be satisfied with stuff. All right, Genesis chapter 3, let me set the context. So God created man and he placed man in this beautiful garden. And in the middle of the garden, uh, he put these two trees. Now we can only imagine that these were magnificent, beautiful trees with luscious fruit. The first tree that scripture describes is called the tree of life. And the tree of life did two things in the garden. First, it was a symbol of life. God gives a lot of symbols. We'll see that this tree is in Revelation as well. Four times it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. So in heaven, this tree will be a symbol of life. In the garden, it was a symbol of life. Also, the tree was very practical. From the fruit, people could eat. And so people were nourished, Adam and Eve, were nourished by the fruit on the tree. And God said, you can eat of that tree. In fact, he says in Hebrew, it's eat to eat. Surely you can eat. In other words, you can eat to your heart's content. You can have all you want. It is like a, a Garden of Eden buffet. There's the tree. Any time of the day. It's like a cruise, right? Never been on a cruise, but that's like a cruise, right? Anytime you want to go eat, there's the tree of life. Now there's also another tree. And it's called the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil, right? And God says, you don't eat of that tree. You don't go there. Because the, it's all, it, sometimes it's called the tree of decision. Because when you eat of that tree, if you eat of that tree, on that day, 
you shall what? Surely die. Now, not just physical death. That starts the process. But first of all, when you think of death, you're thinking of three things. Separation from God. We're separated from God. Physical death that begins the process where our soul is separated from our body. And without Christ, there is eternal death where we are separated from God forever. So you eat of that tree, surely you will die. It introduced evil into the heart of man. So here we go, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. Now with the full scope of Scripture, we know that the serpent was none other than who? Satan himself. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19 or 12 verse 9 and 20 verse 2, he is called the ancient Satan. It's called the ancient serpent. Jesus said he is the father of lies. And Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 44, lying is his native tongue. That's the language that he speaks. And the first words we hear from Satan are lies. Now we're going to get there in a second, but let's back up. Where did he come from? Good, good, good. Everything was good. Chapter 1 and 2, perfect garden. And then Satan, where did he, where did he come from? That even begs another question. Where did evil come from? And the answer to that question, we don't know. We just don't know. God never chooses to tell us that. R.C. Sproul, uh, the great theologian, he's now passed away. But he was, one of the, uh, he, was one of the, he was one of those theologians you could actually understand, right? And R.C. Sproul said, there are two questions I have for God when I get to heaven. One, where did evil come from? And two, are there any golf courses up here? Those were his two. <laughs> so Sproul didn't get it, and we're not going to get it. Where did evil come from? But we know this, that Satan was at one time a beautiful, beautiful angel. One of the most powerful of the angels. And uh, he's also called Lucifer, and he is a created being. We've got to make sure we understand that. He's not eternal. He's a created being. He is not all-powerful, although he was powerful, but not, he's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing, but he certainly knows our weaknesses. He's a student of human nature. And he's not uh, omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time in his full being. He's not close to God, but he's powerful. And there are two passages of Scripture that describe Satan's fall from heaven. Let me give you the first one. We're not going to read it. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 15. And we will read Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. Now I want to say this. A, a prophecy in the Old Testament many times will have a double fulfillment. And so when you read these passages, it's talking about a king, a king of Tyre. It's talking about a real person. And... There's a double fulfillment. Sometimes that happens with Jesus. There's a fulfillment then, and it, it looks forward to Jesus. And so that's what's happening. Most commentators believe, although there's debate, most commentators believe in Isaiah, in Ezekiel 28, and Isaiah 14. I'm going to read this one. Isaiah 14. How you have fallen, how you have fallen, O day star of the dawn. 
talking about Satan's fall from heaven. How you are cut, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set uh, my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here's the kicker. I will make myself like the most high. That's what Satan said. And that's what he did when he tempted Adam and Eve. Remember we're going to see in a second? You can be like God if you eat of this tree of decision. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. I want to show you something cool here. I think this is cool. You may not. But since I'm up here, I get to do this. So I'm going to do it anyway, all right? Okay, so, so this is, I, I really think this is cool. In the Hebrew, the word naked here is the word akrumim, 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 the Hebrew. And the word naked means that Adam and Eve, not, not that they were just without clothes, they were oblivious to evil. They did not know where any danger spot, they didn't even know there were danger spots. They didn't, they didn't even know the word evil, except for the tree of good and evil. They didn't experience it. They didn't know where the danger spots were. They were oblivious to that. That's what the word means. But then Satan was more crafty than any of the other animals God had made. And that word crafty is, here's a play on words in the Hebrew, a krum. So Adam and Eve were a krumem, but Satan was a krum, and that means that he knew where the danger spots were. He created the danger spots. He knew exactly where they were, and he was getting ready to lead Adam and Eve right into the danger zone. Second part of this verse says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, let's just stop there. To this point, when uh, there's this relationship with man and, 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 and God, it always, Scripture always says Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is that covenantal God, that God of personal relationship, that God who loves us. We know now so much that he sent his son to die for us. But Satan can't bring himself to say Yahweh Elohim. He can't bring himself to talk about this God of personal relationship. So he just uses the word Elohim, powerful God. God created it. He can't deny God's power, but he's not going to talk about God's personal relationship with people. And so he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Notice how he exaggerates uh, God's command. So the first thing he says is, did God communicate clearly? Did he really say, you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman uh, replies, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's not true. We can eat of the trees of the fruit uh, uh, of the of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, "You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden." And then what does she add? God never said this, but neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And there are a couple couple subtle things going on there. One, God said you can eat to your heart's content, and. And she says you can eat, 
But she kind of downplays it a little bit. Yeah, we can eat of it. But she, but she should have said, yeah, God gave us this thing to eat to our heart's content. Everything we need is there. And then she said, but we're going to die. And then God said, you're going to surely die. That's the penalty for this. So she kind of downplays that. But then she adds something. What does she add? Anyone know? You can't touch it. God never said that. Now, I don't know what happened there. Here's what we do know. Uh, God gave this command to Adam before Eve was created. And so Adam had the responsibility of passing this down to Eve. So I don't know what went on on that conversation. Like, I don't know if Adam said, that tree right there, God said, don't eat it. But you know what? Let's not even touch that thing. I don't know. But she's adding to it. You don't want to add to what God says. Maybe it was just Eve adding to that. You don't touch it. Now the second thing that Satan accuses God of is God's motives. Are God's motives pure? Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, you're not going to die. The serpent said in verse 4, you're, you're not going to die. Are you seriously? You seriously think you're going to die if you eat a fruit from that tree? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you're going to be like God. Remember, that's what Satan wants all along. He wanted to be like God. Now he's tempting Eve for the same, for the same purpose. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Are God's motives pure? You see, he's not keeping you from that tree. For your good, he's keeping you from the tree for his good. He didn't want you to be like him. The, in verse 4, I skipped one uh, in your notes, but does God tell the truth? Verse 4. He, you're not going to die. Surely you're not going to die. So three things. Does God communicate clearly? Does God tell the truth? And are his motives pure? Now we know that Eve took the bait and she ate of the fruit. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we see, just mark those in your Bible, we see uh, the anatomy of the framework of temptation and sin. Right there, summarized for us in Genesis 3, 6 and 7. I'm going to read through it, and then I'll go back. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight for the, uh, to the eyes, and the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, she ate and, and ate, and she gave it to her husband uh, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then when God came, we'll see later on, they hid themselves. There's the anatomy of sin. Let's go through it. Saw, wanted, took, hid. That's what they did. That's what we do. We see something. It's appealing. If it wasn't appealing, it wouldn't be tempting. And as believers, we see things, and it is appealing to us. See. Second, wanted. There was a desire. She saw the fruit. It, was, it was, looked beautiful, it was luscious, desirable to the eyes. She wanted, she, she desired it. Then, that's just temptation so far. She hadn't sinned yet. But the next part, now she sins, she took. That's when we sin. 
She took, she participated. And then the last, she hid, she covered up. And, and, and we've been doing those things ever since. See, want, take, hide. Uh, jot down these three passages. These are some other passages to study using that anatomy of temptation and sin. Uh, jot down Genesis chapter 33, or 31 rather. That's where Rachel, remember, when she was uh, escaping from her father, she saw a household god and she took it and she hid it under her saddlebag. She, she hid it, she covered up. Uh, another one is um, uh, uh, Joshua chapter 7. That's a classic one with a guy named Achan. Uh, they go, the children of Israel go in and they do battle and, and Achan finds plunder that he shouldn't have taken and he sees it. He says, I saw it. It looked really good to me and I wanted it and I took it and I, it's in my tent. I hid it. Well, how about David? First uh, Samuel 11. He saw Bathsheba. Our second Samuel 11. He saw Bathsheba. He what? Wanted Bathsheba. Is it first or second Samuel? Anyway, one of those Samuels, <laughs> 11, now I've got to think, um, he, he saw Bathsheba, he wanted Bathsheba, he took Bathsheba, and then what? He hid, he covered it up. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. By the way, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't want to read in too much to this, but isn't it interesting that Satan isolates Eve we know that Adam was right there with her, but he speaks directly to Eve. And that's just a reminder how dangerous it is for us to live in isolation. Well, you say he wouldn't. Not in isolation. Adam was right there with her. In chapter 3, verse 6, she turned around and gave fruit to her husband and, who was with her, and he ate it. But wait a minute. You can be standing right together and be alone. There are many couples who live together, put same bed together, come to church together and sit together, but they're alone. And that's a dangerous spot. And if you're in that spot, please get some help. Do some things so that you are never isolated, certainly in your marriage, and isolated in your life. Chapter 3, verse 8, And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, by the way, the cool of the day uh, in Hebrew is during the evening breeze. So now it's evening, the breeze is blowing, and God comes, and the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. God says, where are you? Rhetorical question. He knows where they are, but he always wants us to own up to where we are, and they said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you? Sin, al sin always causes us to hide from God, doesn't it? Sin always causes us to hide from God. And sin always causes us to blame God and others. Look at... Uh, Verse 11. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's your fault, God. I never wanted her. I was, 
I was fine being alone. I loved being with the animals and nature and the garden. And you said not good to be alone and you created her. It's your fault. And then look at verse uh, 12. The, uh, uh, verse 13. Then God said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. He deceived me and I ate it. And we've been blaming people for our sin ever since, haven't we? Come by it naturally. Alan Ross, a commentator, says this. This passage is a perfect case study of temptation. For sin cannot be blamed on environment or heredity. You can't say, it was my parents' fault. You can't say, eh, you know, I just got caught up in the environment around me. Now certainly, as I talked with a couple after the first service, certainly, certainly, as parents, we influence our children. Certainly, you know, people can cause us to go through challenging times. Certainly, that's true. But at the end of the day, only we can make the decision to obey or disobey. That's on us. And we can't blame it on anyone else. And we see that right from Genesis chapter 3. We also see that sin carries consequences. I won't go through those. Um, the women, uh, a woman has pain now in childbirth. Uh, um, the man uh, works the soil by the sweat of his, uh, his brow and you start to die. Physical death now comes part of the human race. Uh, Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 5 this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. We don't become sinners because at some time we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. Like we always say, like the, like the poison at the beginning of a stream contaminates the entire stream. So the poison of sin at the beginning of the human race has contaminated us all. So the man and woman, they're walking with God. They hid themselves, and now they have to deal with sin's consequences. And remember, they, they covered themselves with fig leaves, we'll get, with leaves. We'll get back to that in a second. Now, after God uh, gives those um, uh, consequences, something interesting happens in the text. Now, Moses is writing this. And after all the consequences, in, in chapter 3, verse 20, it almost seems out of place, saying, like, what, what does this mean? Why is this here? Right after the consequences, in chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And what's up with that? Something very important. Here we see, after all these, after he blew it, after he's found out, here we see uh, an, an aspect of Adam's faith. Because when he names his wife Eve, when he gives her the name Eve, that name Eve in, in Greek is Zoe, and it means life giver. She is the mother of all living. And so Adam is saying, that we, we blew it. The penalty of sin is up on us. It's not going to be the same again. But even, even in the sinful state, God has graciously allowed life to continue through Eve. 
even in the pain of bearing a child, there would be the celebration of life. And so we have Adam demonstrating faith. And then God does something very significant. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, skins, and clothed them. And here we see that God provides a substitute. Let's just think about that. When Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and they covered themselves with what? With leaves of some sort. So they go to a tree and they pulled off these leaves. Don't know how big the leaves were, don't know how many they were, but they covered themselves with the leaves. But what happened on that limb of that tree? A leaf grew back, right? So although they took the leaf, a leaf grew back. But God said the penalty of sin is what? Death. When you eat of that tree, you're going to die. And so God clothed them with garments of skin, which means he himself put to death an animal, something that had life that couldn't come back. He himself put to death an animal and prepared a covering for them by the garment, by the skin of that animal. God provided the first substitute for sin. And he's going to provide the perfect and last through Jesus, isn't he? He provides the first. He provides the perfect and last substitute for sin. Look over at chapter 3, verse 15. Mark this in your Bible. This in Latin is called the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, it, it is uh, the, the prototype of the gospel, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And God is speaking to Satan, and he's telling Satan, uh, you, uh, I, I, got, I got consequences uh, for you. And here he tells him in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, so the forces of evil... And, and mankind, I'm going to put enmity between that. And he, her offspring, shall bruise your head. Some translations, crush your head. And you, Satan, will bruise his heel. Proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. So here's what God is saying as now we know the scope of Scripture. From Eve's offspring, Satan... There's going to be Cain, and there's going to be Abel, and there's going to be a lot of others, but there's going to be one named who? Jesus. And he is going to crush your head. The death that you have issued into the human race, he is going to stop it. He's going to pay for it once and for all, so people no longer have to die. They're going to live forever if they know him. He's the key. You're going to bruise his heel. You're going to make it painful for him. He's going to be rejected and despised. He's going to go on the cross. He's going to have to bear the sin of mankind in his body on the cross. You're going to, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going, to, he's going to crush your head. On the cross, Jesus did that. And then one day, Satan, you're going to be, you're going to be eliminated forever. Romans chapter 16 tells us that. Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Jesus is the one, the remedy, the only way we can have a relationship with God. The only way the relationship can be restored is only through Jesus. We see the first sacrifice, the, the animal, but it's the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, fully God, fully man, that we can have a relationship with the living God. Now we have that, for those of you who have that relationship, there is something we live with in our life, this tension, isn't there? Between, as a believer, wanting to do what God wants us to do, right? But we still have that old flesh wanting to do what we want to do. Anyone feel that tension? Even as a believer. I'll raise my hand. We wake up in the morning and we, we say, God, I want to live for you today. I, wanted, I wanna really want to demonstrate what it looks like to live for you. I want, I want to demonstrate to the world. And then we battle with the words we say. Oh, we shouldn't have said that. Or the thoughts we think. Or something we see that we shouldn't have looked at. Just whatever can go on and on, right? And we have this battle. So, so sometimes people will come to me and they say, man, I just trusted in Christ. See, that's fantastic. They said, this has been the hardest month of my life. Yeah, because now you're in a battle. You didn't have that before. You just did whatever you wanted to do. No tension. You're your own God. You get to call your shots, but now it's different. Now, again, we have the Holy Spirit living within us to give us everything we need. And think of it, it's, this is a hard even to get over. We don't have to sin. As a believer, we don't have to sin. But we do because we still have that fleshly nature that we got from Adam and Eve. We still have that desire. Satan's still out there. Remember, Paul says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the forces of the enemy. And we're in a battle. But here's the cool thing. We don't battle. So if you're in a battle as a believer, so sometimes a person who comes, becomes a Christian and it starts getting tough, they say, man, I must be doing something wrong. Was this, did this really take? If this is tough, I, I don't know that I, I, didn't, I didn't know this was the deal. This is the deal. We don't battle, we don't battle to become a Christian. That's a free gift. And we don't battle to become more of a Christian. We can't become more of a child than God has us to be. The battle is that spiritual growth that we call it sanctification, becoming, becoming more like Christ. That's the battle. And here's the beauty. We are free to struggle in that. God has given us everything we need to, to do that battle. We're free to struggle. So I was talking to a friend of mine this week, lives in another state. And uh, we were talking about, you know, he, he said, he said um, that verse, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said, I don't, think I, I, I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever experienced that. A time in my life when I loved him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we talked about that. And then we talked about the battle that keeps happening. And we're not always battling. Sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good day and, and we're really experiencing the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And other times, man, we're in it. But the cool thing is we're free 
to struggle. We're free to do the battle. And so he said, my wife, uh, just, we, my wife and I were talking about this, and she shared a song with me uh, by 10th Avenue North. And, and, and I'm going to have Susie sing this in, in a second. I just want to read the first line, or the first bit. There's a wreckage. There's a fire. There's a weakness in my love. Don't you feel that? Man, I want to love, love God more, but there's this weakness in my love. There's a hunger I can't control. Lord, I falter and I fall down. And then I hold on to the chains you broke when you came down and saved my soul. And then the little chorus goes like this. Hallelujah. We are free to struggle. Aren't you glad of that? We're free to be in the battle. We're not struggling to be free. Your blood bought and makes us children. So children, drop your chains and sing. Listen to Susie sing this for us. Let the words just kind of flow over you. If you know them, feel free to sing with her. But think about the words. In Christ, our identity is in him, and now we are free to struggle because what he has done for us. The struggle is always there because of Genesis 3. But God gives us everything we need to do the battle.